Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast, episode 213, Kanishka and the Wonder of the World. We start today's episode in ancient China, on the western border, at evening. And there we'll find a young monk hunkering down into the sand. He's trying to keep himself as low as possible because he's trying to hide from the watchtower until night falls. And there's nowhere else to hide. There's not a drop of water or a shrub in sight. So he's pushing his body into the sand, willing it to go unnoticed. The young monk is called Shanzang. And Shanzang is trying to escape from China. He weren't allowed to leave China. The emperor had banned anyone from leaving. But Shanzang is determined to make his way to India because he's on a mission to go and get the original Buddhist books and bring them back to China and restore Chinese Buddhism to the true faith. Fortunately for Indian historians, Shanzang is going to succeed. He's actually going to get spotted by the watchtower he's trying to hide from right now. But he's going to manage to talk and trick his way past the watchtower and also the next watchtower, and the next watchtower, and the next watchtower. And after that, he's past them. He's past all of the watchtowers. He's out of Chinese territory. He's heading west into the great dry dust bowl of the Tarim Basin. The Tarim Basin is a huge thing. It's, it's bigger than Pakistan or Turkey. And it's almost entirely empty in this period. Almost no settlements. The only paths through it are marked by the bones of former travellers who've tried to go that way. So if you're setting out on foot from China to India, you're best advised to skirt around the edge of the Tarim Basin. Now, a couple of centuries before our monk tried it, another Chinese monk had tried to walk to India and he skirted the basin to the south and then took the quick way into India through the high road, which was given the quite terrifying name of the Hanging Pass. But in the last 200 years, the southern road has become more dangerous. So if you're travelling to India by foot, you want to go on the northern path. And our friend Shanzang is going to try the northern path. He's going to duck along between the Great Basin and the, and the desert and the feet of the mountains. He's going to hop from oasis town to oasis town until finally he reaches Central Asia. And there he will turn south, down through the great cities of one of the centres of the world, with names that must have seemed as mythical to him as they do to us. Tashkent. Samarkand. And beyond them, down into the, the, the land of Bactro with its, with its fortresses, through the Kabul Valley, into the winding Khyber Pass, and finally, down to the rivers and plains of India itself. It's a difficult journey. Even if you were travelling eight hours a day, every day, with no false turns, no delays, it would take you seven months straight. And if you've also got to deal with bandits, with getting lost, with honouring kings who want your attention, it's going to take many months more, perhaps even years. But Shanzang manages to, to make the trip. And when he finally reaches India, the first city he's going to come to as he comes out of the Khyber Pass is Peshwa. And the people of Peshwa tell the monk a story. In fact, it's the same story they told to the Chinese monk who came the century before. And it's the same story they told to the Chinese monk who came the century before that. And the story goes like this. Once, a long time ago, the Buddha had been travelling through the country too, and he'd come to this very city, just like you have, Chinese monk. 
And there the Buddha had made a prophecy. He prophesied that after he'd left the world, 400 years would pass. And then a great king would arise and the king would conquer the whole of India. And just outside the city, this king would build a stupa, a great monument to Buddhism. And he would put inside the stupa the Buddha's own bones and flesh. And then the people of Peshawar told Shanzang, the monument's still there. The stupa's still there. The king came and he built it and it's still there. You can go and see it for yourself. So Shanzang will rush out of the city, down to the south, and there he will find the stupa. The finest stupa in all of India. A huge thing, vast, and, and covered in the most beautiful adornments, pearls, gems, and much more. It was a wonder of the world that should take its place alongside the statue at Rhodes and the pyramids at Giza. And Shanzang will worship there, and after his long journey to India, he's going to find himself restored and excited to see what he would find next. This week, we take another look at the emperor who built the stupa, the king who conquered the whole of India from the Buddha's prophecy. This king was none other than our favourite cushion conqueror, Kanishka. Kanishka, towards the end of his life, became a Buddhist, and this was his great monument to Buddhism, his attempt, in fact, to repay all the damage his conquests had done to his fellow man. So here's the plan of the episode. First, we'll look at the claim that the Kushan Empire was a world of religious tolerance. And then we'll try and dig a bit deeper and get a grip on Kanishka's religious background. Where's he coming from when he's converting to Buddhism? What, what, what's the religion of his ancestors? What's the religion of his father? And then we'll take a look at the consequences of Kanishka's adoption of Buddhism, the construction of the stupa itself, and also, maybe even more significantly for world history, the meeting of Buddhist leaders that he called together. That meeting would change Buddhism across the world forever. If there's one thing the Kushan Empire is known for, it's for being a secular state. And to the modern ear, being secular sounds familiar and perhaps a little bit comforting, depending where you're from. But there are actually two kinds of secular state, and in many ways, they're entirely opposite. First, there are the secular states like the France of Napoleon. These are against the public expression of all religions equally. And then there are the secular states like the India that Gandhi imagined. And that's for all religions equally, public expression included. Quite different sorts of world to live in. And the thing that the Kushan Empire is known for is for being secular in the second sense. The Kushans were for all religions equally, for the public expression of each of them. If you were living in Kushan lands and you held to any of the major religions or even one of the minor new sects or cults, you could expect open support from the state and maybe even some money from the state too. So that's the classic view of the Kushans, religiously tolerant, sponsoring all religions. And there's lots of evidence that this view is basically right, that the Kushans really were secular in this sense. Modern day historians almost always cite the fact that the coins of the Kushans had gods from many different religions. So that even on their official coinage, their official documents, the Kushans were declaring themselves as a secular empire. You get Brahminical gods, Bactrian gods, Greek gods, Roman gods, and more besides on the coins. Just the lists of the gods are dazzling. Shiva, Nike, Mithra, Zeus, Ahura Mazda, Nana, Mao, and at least a dozen more. If you were a citizen of the Kushan Empire, 
it, would, it was almost certain that the god you worshipped in the temple was also depicted on the coins in your purse. Now, modern historians tend to trust all of that coin evidence a lot, but it's not just modern historians who thought that the cushions were broad-minded when it came to religion. Even ancient historians had the same idea. Take that monk Shang Zhang, for example, the one who walked from China to India at the start of this episode. In Shan Zhang's mind, the Kushan era was a glorious one, where religions were free to prosper. And after it was over, after the Kushan Empire collapsed, it was back to business as usual. So Shan Zhang wrote that the rulers after the Kushans banished the priests and overthrew religion. So in Shan Zhang's mind, the age of the Kushans was a golden age of religious tolerance and religious support. The claim that the Kushans were especially broad-minded about religion is actually a really big boast. And that's because all the other major empires of its day, they were pretty religiously tolerant too. To the West, the Parthians were there, and they had their own religion focusing on the sun and the moon, but they were happy to have and to support Mazdaism and the Magi. To the East, the Han Chinese, they also had their own thing going on, the cult of heaven, but they were happy to have an influential and largely Taoist population, they were happy to financially support Confucianism, and they were more than happy to have a growing Buddhist population too. Even Rome had been a pretty tolerant place religiously for quite a long time, though they'd recently reversed that policy and started lining the roads with Christians and Jews being tortured to death, which counts as a mark against them. The great empires of this age were secular, and they were probably secular just out of need. You need to be secular if you're a large empire in this time because it's the only way to control people. There are just too many active and vibrant faiths wandering around and it's just a whole hodgepodge and you can't afford to upset any of the major faiths. But even amongst these empires, these jewels of religious tolerance in the ancient world, the Kushana Empire might have sparkled especially brightly. And that's because the Kushana Empire might have had to be even more broad-minded about religion than the other empires. Because it straddled India and Central Asia. And both of these places had been producing and growing communities of different sorts of religion at a really exceptional rate. And in different areas, different religions were dominant. So in Central Asia, there'll be areas which were dominated by Zoroastrians and other areas where the majority worshipped the Iranian gods and other areas where the majority worshipped the Greek gods. And in India, there's an even more intricate patchwork of Buddhists, Jains, Shaivites, Ajivikas and many others. So there's a huge variety of subjects, religions in Kushana territory, but it's more than just that. If the Kushanas were known for just one thing, it was being secular. But if the Kushanas were known for two things, it was being secular and being traders, being merchants. The Kushana Empire was, when you really get down to it, it was a trading empire. Its heartland was Bactria. And Bactria controlled one end of the Silk Road, the great international trade route. And... You can think of all the conquering that the Kushans did from their Bactrian heartland, all, all of those uh, great armies pouring down the Ganges or mounting up onto the Deccan Plateau. All of that conquering was really all to secure the sources of the goods that were desired by Rome and China, to get more tax from them, to increase the trade. 
Now, this picture of the Kushan Empire isn't just a passing fancy of Marxist historians. It's actually how the Kushans might well have seen themselves. If you're a ruler, you normally want to boast about your good works. And most rulers boasted about their religious donations and so forth, or their conquests. But if you're a ruler in the Kushan era, you tended to also boast about how you had facilitated people's travel, how you'd increased trade or industry. So some Kushan rulers boasted about how they'd paid for the ferry rides of travellers across the river, or how they'd funded palm trees and set up farms along the coast. To cut a long story short, the plan of the Kushan Empire was to encourage travel and trade as much as possible and then sit back while the tax piled up. And all of this trade and travel had a big impact, of course, on the religious patchwork of the empire. People were moving about and they were taking their ideas with them, so that pretty soon, even, with one, even within one city or town, there would now be sizable communities adopting religions from all parts of the world. So, even more than other empires perhaps, the Kushan Empire was held together by the fact that different people from different backgrounds managed to get along. This was not an empire where you wanted to support one religious community and alienate the others. So the standard story looks roughly right. On matters of religion, the Kushans were, more or less, an enlightened, secular state. And I think that's basically right, as a rough outline. But it can't be the full picture, because it doesn't have room for Kanishka, the greatest of the Kushana emperors. By the end of Kanishka's reign, his coins no longer held images of a vast array of gods. They were gone, and in their place was the image of just one religious leader, the Buddha. Kanishka was a king who supported one religion above the others. If we want to find out why Kanishka became a Buddhist, we have to go back to the story of the stupa. Remember the prophecy the Buddha had made when he had passed by Peshwa that 400 years after he had left the earth, a king called Kanishka would arise and he'd build a stupa there and put the Buddha's relics inside. Well, the Buddha left the world and... 400 years after that, King Kanishka went out hunting. He set out into the jungle near Peshwa, and as he was roaming around, he spotted a white hare. Now, a white hare might be pretty common if you're in Russia or Northern Europe, but as far as I've seen, there aren't any species of white hare in India. So a white hare in India is a bit of a legendary creature. Not as good as a white elephant, perhaps, but still well worth catching. So Kanishka set off chasing this white hare, and the hare scuttled into the bushes of the jungle, and King Kanisha stormed in after it. The hare came out into a clearing, still running as fast as it could, and Kanishka burst into the clearing too. But then he stops. Because there are four boys in the clearing, building a little mound of mud. And just as the king entered, three of the boys vanished into thin air. And even weirder, the fourth boy turned around to look at him and started to levitate. He rose three feet off the ground and then he started to speak to the king. He told the king about the Buddha's prophecy on this very site all those centuries ago. That Kanishka was going to come and conquer India and was going to build this stupa. 
Kanishka was naturally quite flattered to be a figure of ancient prophecy, and so the story goes, he became a Buddhist and he decided to build the stupa. Slow down. Hang on a second. What exactly did Kanishka think he was doing when he was choosing to adopt Buddhism? Was it like a conversion to Christianity or Islam or Judaism? To find out, we're going to have to get a picture of his religious background, a picture of the religions of the cushions, and a picture of the religions of his own parents. And that's going to be helpful, not just for working out what's going through Kanishka's head, what he thinks he's doing, but it's also going to be helpful for working out what effect this change of religion at the top of the empire is going to have for people down at the bottom of the empire. So let's take a journey back into Kushan religion. We could start way, way back, into the mists of time, before any histories were written down, where the distant ancestors of Kanishka were huddled around the fires on the northern border of China. The songs they sang around the campfires were songs of Ori Mazda and Savanta Arnati. Who are they? Well, they're gods. Uri Mazda, if you are into world religions, might remind you of Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda is the creator and the most important god of Zoroastrianism. Back in the day, Zoroastrianism was one of the major world religions. Think of it as something on the scale of Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity or Islam today. And its followers were scattered over a vast area. But in fact, when those ancient cushions were huddled around the fires of North China, Zoroastrianism hasn't, hadn't reached them yet. It hadn't quite made it that far. So that when they were singing songs to Uri Mazda, they weren't following Zoroastrianism. Instead, Uri Mazda to them was the god of the sun. What about the other one, the goddess, Savanta Arnati? Well, about Savanta Arnati, we know almost nothing. But she was probably the earth goddess. So, putting it all together, as far as we can tell, the ancient Kushans had a very simple religion. Father, son and Mother Earth. Actually, though, none of that would have meant very much to Kanishka, as he was deciding to become a Buddhist. I mean, maybe he'd heard one of the elders mention it when he was a lad, but the religion of the ancient Kushans was really long since lost. The ancient Kushans had no language to write down their songs to Ahura Mazda, or if they did, the writings didn't survive. And if Kanishka heard that his ancestors used to worship sun and earth, he might have paid it no more mind than if a modern American discovered that his ancestors used to worship Woden. A curio, but nothing really to do with me. The Kushan people had long since moved away from that place and those gods. The north of China was full of threatening tribes too, so the Kushans had picked up their belongings and taken themselves westward in search of safer lands. And they finally found those safer lands in Bactria. So the Kushans started to settle down. They set about conquering the patchwork of petty Bactrian kings. They wanted to make Bactria the new Kushan homeland. And at the same time as the Kushans were taking the Bactrian kings' kingdoms, they were also taking the Bactrian kings' religions. And since the Bactrian kings had been Greeks, almost since Alexander the Great, that meant taking on Greek religions. So, as the Kushans started to settle down, they started to worship figures that they called Nike, Zeus, Mithra, Hercules. 
actually seem to have made an interesting selection from the pantheon of Greek gods. They seem to have chosen those gods that are kind of connected to victory, you know, authority, power. Right? Nike is the goddess of victory. Or Hercules, who's the performer of impossible tasks. Or Zeus, the most powerful of the gods. It's all a little bit tiger mum stuff, if you know what I mean. Actually, though, the Greek sheen on these gods was probably quite thin. They might have used Greek names for these gods, Nike, Hercules, Zeus. And they might have even pictured them in the ways that Greeks did. So a picture of Nike would have had wings on it. A picture of Zeus would have had thunderbolts. But scratch just a little bit below the surface. Ask them who they're really worshipping and what they're like. And you'll find that these cushions aren't really adopting Greek religion wholeheartedly. They're equating these Greek gods with other gods they've picked up along the way. So Zeus was really Ahura Mazda. And Nike was really Vanindo, and Hercules was really Orlagno, and Mithra was Miro. So these gods were wearing Greek masks, but they were deep down Iranian gods, which the cushions had adopted funny Greek names and images for. And over the years, the Greek facade slipped off the images. The gods started to be pictured and presented as Iranian gods. People no longer called them Nike, or Hercules, or Mithra, or Zeus, they called them Vanido, or Ahura Mazda. This happened particularly in the beginning of Kanishka's reign. He was the one driving this. It probably didn't actually change who the cushions thought they were worshipping at all. Not a little bit. Another thing changed over the years. The cushion kings started to think of themselves as God. They started to build up an imperial cult. Now, the imperial cult of the Kushan kings wasn't supposed to be an alternative to your other religions. You're supposed to think of it more as an addition, another god to put alongside your own god. You can think of the imperial cult as quite a canny move. The idea is that you tie people to the state because they're worshipping the emperor, and you also tie them to one another, even if they've got religious differences, they share this idea that you're supposed to worship the emperor. So they share at least one person they're worshipping. Something similar went on in Rome, though Romans at least had the decency to wait until they were dead before pronouncing themselves gods. Also, Romans often didn't seem to take the whole emperor becoming god thing all that seriously. Yet people making jokes like Cicero about uh, the, the emperors, the bad emperors who become gods, having really terrible jobs in heaven. You can't really imagine someone making that sort of joke to a living cushion emperor who had declared himself a god. Anyway, Kushan religion settled down into this superficially Greek, deeply Iranian Bactrian religion. And that was the religion of the Kushan people during Kanishka's day. But it wasn't the religion of his father. His father had quite a different sort of idea about the world. His father was Rima Kadphysis. We've talked about him in another podcast. And Rima Kadphysis was the, was the guy who seriously pushed the Kushan empire into India. It already got Peshawar, just at the, got a foot in the door of India, but Rima Kadphysis conquered huge tracts of Indian territory. Now, during this time, the Kushans had already started to add Indian gods to the list of the images on their coins. But Rima Kadphysis took it a step further. 
He bought into Indian religion in a big way, and one Indian religion in particular, the worship of Shiva. And in fact, Wima calls himself a worshipper of Shiva in one of his inscriptions. And the reverse of every single one of his coins is the image of just one god, Shiva. And it was more than coins. Wima had Shiva temples built and also temples for Shiva's consort, Parvati. And it was more than that too. According to Wima, he only got given the empire at all because of Shiva. On one inscription, Wima called himself someone steadfast in true Dharma whose kingdom was bestowed on him by Shiva. So he's heavily into this. Why Shiva in particular? Well, worship of Shiva was probably the most prominent line of Brahminical thought in India at this time. In later years, it's actually going to come to cover almost the entirety of India and have a sort of reasonably strong dominance. It's still very popular in southern India, of course, but once the entire region was like that, and Wima might have been caught up in the beginning of that movement. Shiva also would have fitted nicely in with the sorts of gods that Wima grew up with, all those warlike victory gods, Nike, Zeus, Hercules. Well, Shiva can be a warrior too, and Wima in fact calls him the warlike divinity. It's also possible, if you're the more cynical sort of person, that Wima saw sort of strategic advantages to adopting the mainstream Brahminical religion. Getting supporters of Brahminical orthodoxy on your side could be a serious advantage if you're trying to invade India and stabilise your new Indian territories. So there you have it. Now you're up to speed with the background to Kanishka's decision to become a Buddhist. He's not doing something radically new. He's just doing the same thing his father did, adopting an Indian religion. His father's already broken the ground. It's important because it tells us that the Kushan Empire wasn't any longer an empire where all religions were supported equally by the state. This was an empire where one religion could be adopted above all the others. Quick aside, I sometimes feel the need to remind myself that Buddhism was really an Indian religion back then. That might sound a really silly, but you can kind of get carried away thinking that Buddhism was especially suitable for foreigners. There were all those famous kings who adopted Buddhism, the most famous being the Indo-Greek king Melinda. And it kind of makes sense that Buddhism's suited to foreigners if you don't look at it too closely. Buddhism didn't have quite as strict restrictions on varna, on caste, as Brahminical orthodoxy. And you might think that that meant that it was more welcoming to foreigners, had looser restrictions on foreigners too. Actually, we should do a special episode soon on how foreigners were seen by ancient Indians. But in any case, this idea that Buddhism was especially suited to foreigners can't be quite right. Buddhism was an Indian religion like all the others. For one thing, there are just as many foreign kings embracing and embraced by Brahminical orthodoxy as there are foreign kings embraced by Buddhism. For every Melinda, you've got an Apollodotus. Apollodotus was an Indo-Greek king who, uh, who worshipped Shiva. And some of the Shaka kings, foreign kings, also adopted Brahminical ideas. When I sit down and I'm honest with myself, the only reason I'm tempted to think of ancient Buddhism as non-Indian is because of my perspective, because I'm living in the modern era. 
And I know that nowadays most Buddhists are non-Indians, so I'm tempted to imagine that Buddhism was somehow destined to leave India back then, that it was tailored to suit foreign interests and foreign minds, but there's just not that much truth to it. Anyway, that's the aside over. At this time, Buddhism and Shaivism, worship of Shiva, were seen as equally Indian religions. So both Vimakadvaisis and Kanishka, his son, were embracing a way of seeing the world that would have been thought as alien to people in their Bactrian homeland. But both men were broad-minded enough to give this alien view a fair hearing and even to accept it wholeheartedly. And actually, they kept on supporting the other religions too. But the symbols of the state and the majority of their money were now directed towards their favourite Indian religions. So Kanishka has adopted Buddhism. He's been persuaded by the Buddha's prophecy, delivered by a levitating boy, to become a Buddhist. And he sets about doing what the Buddha prophesied he would, building that stupa. The boys he had seen, the ones who had told him about the prophecy, had already started to build a little stupa made of mud. Not more than a few feet high, just really a mound of mud, nothing more. So Kanishka decided that he would build his fine new stupa on top of this little mud toy. Construction started on the new stupa, and all the finest craftsmen came in on the job. Sounds a little bit odd to talk about the construction of a stupa. Stupas were sometimes nothing more than just mounds of earth or brick, often dressed on the outside with a bit of stone perhaps, but pretty simple structures. Actually, though, the finest stupas in the land were built by constructing stone walls and concentric rings around a central point. And then the spaces between the walls were carved up into compartments by walls radiating out from the centre, and the compartments were filled with rammed earth. And a big stupa might have had several such rings of stone, uh, three or more maybe. Anyway, the craftsmen got to work building the fine new stone stupa over the boy's mud stupa. But as they built up the walls of the new stupa, the boy's little mud stupa grew with it, so that the boy's stupa was always just a few feet higher than the king's stupa. Kanishka was not pleased. He ordered that his stupa be built higher still. So the craftsmen got back to work, building up the new stupa. But still, as they built the new stupa higher and higher, the boy's mud stupa always grew with it. So they had to build it higher and higher in a sort of race to the top. And they built it really, really high until finally, they'd finally got higher than the mud stupa. Five stories high, 150 feet off the ground, they'd finally managed to beat those four little boys. But no sooner had they managed to get their stupa higher than the mud stupa, than the mud stupa was back. It popped out the side of the new stupa in the southeast corner at the base. King Kanishka had had enough. He ordered that the mud stupa was destroyed. He wanted the earth torn apart and scattered. But even as his workmen tore apart the, the, the earth of the mud stupa and threw it away, another mud stupa appeared by its side. Kanishka realised that he was beat. He realised he wasn't a god and that he couldn't beat this supernatural power. He was just a vain and proud man building a normal mortal stupa. Well, it's a nice moral, but whatever the truth of the story... 
Kanishka's great stupa certainly existed. In fact, you can still see its remains if you go to Peshawar and go to the city gate. The platform and the stupa itself together were about 400 feet high. And the stone facade really does seem to have been speckled with gems and there were gilded metal bands too. And on the very top of the stupa was an iron pillar. It was a really substantial pillar, a pillar so large and heavy that later generations thought it could only have been raised there by divine power. And then at each corner of the stupa was a tower with a staircase in it. And there's also talk about a covering over the top of all of this, like a sort of huge umbrella for the whole monument. And on top of that, Kanishka placed a net of the finest pearls. Later generations thought that this net was a step too far, and they took the pearls down to stop them uh, being stolen by thieves. They buried the pearl net under a tree, on the understanding that if the stupa was ever damaged, the king of the age, whoever it was, could dig up the pearls and sell them to get money to rebuild the stupa. But the most important thing about the stupa was what was inside, right in the very centre. There's a small chamber, and inside that chamber was a casket. This casket is a real masterwork. It's a shortish metal cylinder, and on the top we've got the Buddha sitting on a lotus flower. And on either side he's flanked by Brahminical gods, Brahma and Indra. And Hamza, that's a holy Indian geese, dance around the rim of the lid. Beneath that, on the side of the vessel, Kanishka had his own image inscribed. It's in the standard Kanishka pose. Tunic, belt, legs firmly aside, his turban on, all ready for war. In this particular image, he's oddly young looking. He's not wearing a beard. In fact, this is the only image we have of Kanishka without a beard. But he's still got his distinctive sideburns. And Kanishka on the side of this, this cylinder, was flanked on either side by some old friends, the sun and the moon god, Miro and Mao, and they're putting wreaths on him to honour him. And if there were any doubt about the mighty king who had achieved all this, who had built this wonder of the world, the box was inscribed with Kanishka's own name. Twice. Inside the box was a plain rock crystal carved into a six-sided shape and hollowed out inside. It was sealed shut with a coin of Kanishka's son with the goddess Nana on it. And inside the, the rock crystal were some fragments of bones, three fragments in fact, and these were supposed to be the bones of the Buddha himself. So Kanishka, or at least his son, had fulfilled the Buddha's prophecy. He had built the great stupa and he had placed Buddha's own bones inside. The stupa I've described was a real wonder of the world. It's very easy to get enthusiastic about these things and big things up too much, but I really think it does belong alongside the Colossus at Rhodes and the Pyramids of Giza and all the rest, the mausoleum at Halicarnassus. But unlike some of those other wonders of the world, the stupa had a problem. And it was exactly the problem that you'd expect a huge stupa, four to five stories high, with a huge metal pole on top to have. The stupa was struck by lightning. Repeatedly, in fact, so it kept on catching fire. And in fact, when our, when our young Chinese pilgrim, Shanzang, saw it, the whole thing was ruined by fire, and it was still being rebuilt. 
And over the years, it had to be rebuilt again and again, and it was always rebuilt in slightly different shapes and slightly different ways. It retained most of its glory, though, and it retained its status as the most magnificent stupa in the whole of India. Nowadays, there's just ruins, and to be honest, there's nothing much there. In fact, the archaeologists, when they first dug it, thought there was nothing there at all. It was only when a second team came around and dug a little bit deeper, they found what they were looking for. And the modern archaeologists actually found one other thing in the ruins of the stupa, a fragment from another story from another episode of this podcast, a thick wooden begging bowl, perhaps a wooden begging bowl worth 300,000 gold pieces. So Kanishka had endorsed Buddhism in a big way. And you might have thought this had a huge impact on his empire, but not much impact on Buddhism. In fact, that gets it exactly the wrong way around. The people of the empire really weren't affected that much by Kanishka's adopting Buddhism, but Buddhism was transformed forever. Let's talk about the people of the empire first and the impact of Kanishka's conversion on them. Well, plenty of the people in Kanishka's empire were Buddhist, of course particularly those living in Gandhara, that's the northwest part of India where the Great Stupa was. That had become the new Buddhist heartland of India. There are some stories about these Indian Buddhists. One story talks about uh, a poor Buddhist layman but who's very devout, very enthusiastic. I think he's a, a potter or something like that. Anyway, he wants to honour the Buddha with one of these great works. He's seen the Stupa go up, he's very impressed. So he gathers as much money as he can, he sells everything he can, he works really hard, and finally he scrapes together a single gold coin. So he takes it down to the stupa, and he finds a painter, and he says, can you paint me an image of the Buddha, as big and splendid as possible? I've got a gold coin. I know it's not enough, but I'm hoping you'll do the job anyway. And a gold coin really wasn't enough, it wasn't even enough to pay for the raw materials. But fortunately, at the same time, unbeknownst to him, there was another devout but very poor Buddhist layman. And he wanted to do the same thing. He wanted to get a painting of the Buddha done in the Buddha's honour. So he scraped together and sold all he could and he got together one gold coin. And he also went down to the stupa and he also found a painter and he also asked him apologetically, could you please just paint me an image of the Buddha for this gold coin? Well, fortunately for the two poor Buddhist laymen, the painter the first one asked and the painter the second one asked were one and the same man. And that painter took the two gold coins, put them together, and it was just enough for the raw materials for a painting. So he got the paint and he started to paint the image of the Buddha. Now, we hear stories of the fabulous paintings of the Buddha around the stupa. The story goes that they're, 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 they're constructed, they're painted with a special paint a uh, paint that's had these little gold-coloured ants working on it, so that although it looks violet in the shade, when the sun comes out, it hits all these tiny particles of gold, and the whole thing glimmers. So the painter's painting one of these amazing Buddhist images. He brings the two men together and says, look, I've done your painting. And they're a bit confused. They say, look, there's only one painting here, but we have two paintings between us. And miraculously, the painting splits in two, and everybody is happy. So there were plenty of Buddhists in the area, and they would have been pretty happy, presumably, that Kanishka had converted and built this stupa. After all, this is backing, imperial backing, for their, uh, for their religion. 
There were loads of non-Buddhists in the empire too, of course, but they didn't actually need to be worried by Kanishka's turn to Buddhism. Kanishka might be displaying a personal favouritism towards Buddhism, but that didn't exclude the other gods. Just think about that casket in the very centre of the stupa. There's Buddha sitting on a lotus tree, a lotus plant. By his side, there's Indra and Brahma. Those are Indian gods. And there are Iranian gods on the casket too, in even closer proximity to the king himself. Or take that story about how the stupa was constructed, the story about the Buddha making the prophecy and so forth. Well, when that story of how the stupa was constructed got told, it was said that the little boy who built the mud stupa and told Kanishka about the prophecy, that little boy was none other than Indra himself. So any idea that any follower of Brahminical orthodoxy might have had that Kanishka, because he became a Buddhist, was going to pay less attention to their gods, it's just not true. And that's about all there is to say about how the conversion of Kanishka affected the people of his empire. It just didn't affect them that much. There's no identifiable difference in the day-to-day life of the Kushan Empire before the conversion and after. That seems actually quite different from other empires. For example, the Mauryan Empire we talked about in the last season. Kanishka, maybe because he just wasn't quite as devout or quite as evangelical a Buddhist as Ashoka, didn't change his empire in a very significant way after his conversion. What about, though, the influence of Kanishka on Buddhism itself? Well, Kanishka can definitely stake a claim to influencing Buddhism far more than Ashoka ever did. The Buddhists of Kanishka's time had an issue. We'll leave the exact details to the History of Indian Philosophy podcast that I recommend all the time. Go and check it out. It's it's part of the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps uh, series. It's really, really good. But for our purposes, all we need to know is that the issue that the Buddhists of Kanishka's time had was that it had all got a bit confusing. Confusing. There are a bunch of different sects of Buddhism, and they're all saying different things. And the Buddhists of, of Kanishka's time just wanted to get straight about what was what and what was not. So, under the patronage of Kanishka, the leading Buddhist monks decided to meet. They couldn't meet in the old stomping ground of the Buddha himself, Rajagriha, because nowadays that was a hotbed of heretics. And the new Buddhist stronghold, Gandhara, well, we could meet there, but frankly, that's a little bit humid, a little bit hot, a little bit unpleasant. So the Buddhist monks decided to meet in Kashmir. For the first time, the Sri Lankan Buddhists weren't invited to one of these big meetings. But everyone else was there from India, including Kanishka's best friend, the Buddhist monk Ashvagosha. And there, in that meeting, they clarified and laid down the doctrine of Buddhism. And then they got Ashvagosha to write it all down, not in the Prakrit that the Buddhist texts had almost always used before, but in Sanskrit. This meeting changed the face of Buddhism forever, in at least two ways. Firstly, maybe more superficially, it made Sanskrit the language of Buddhism, not Prakrit. You have our friend Ashvagosha to thank for that. And secondly, the meeting and that the theological debates they had, and the decisions they came to, sooner or later, that meeting led to the great schism of Buddhism. 
You might think of it as equivalent to the schism between Protestantism and Catholicism or the, the schism between Sunni and Shia. The, the Buddhist community split into higher vehicle and lower vehicle. And that's a split that still shapes Buddhism today. So, surprisingly, when Kanishka adopted Buddhism, it didn't lead to division in his empire, but it did lead to division in Buddhism. Every week we read something from the original primary sources. This week, let's read something from our friend, the Chinese monk, Shan Zhang. He wrote left a couple of books describing his journey to India. And, and here's a bit of him describing the area around the great stupa of Kanishka. And also, what's going to happen to the world when Kanishka's stupa disappears. It's from an old translation by Samuel Bill. And it goes like this. To the southwest of the great stupa, a hundred paces or so, there's a figure of Buddha in white stone, and it's about 18 feet high. It's a standing figure, and it looks to the north. It's got many spiritual powers, and it diffuses a brilliant light. Sometimes there are people who see the image come out of an evening and go round the great stupa. Lately, a band of robbers wished to go in and steal from the stupa, and the, Im the image immediately came forth and stood in front of the robbers. Affrightened, they ran away, and the image then returned to its own place and remained fixed as before. The robbers, affected by what they had seen, began a new life, left robbing, and went about through towns and villages telling people what had happened. To the left and the right of the great stupa are a hundred little stupas, standing closely together, and they're made with consummate art. Exquisite perfumes and different musical sounds at times are perceived. These are the work of the rishis, the saints, and the eminent sages. These are also at times seen walking round the stupas. According to the prediction of Buddha, after this stupa has been seven times burnt down and seven times rebuilt, then the religion of Buddha will disappear. And the record of the old worthies says that this building has already been destroyed and restored three times. That's all for this week. Thank you very much indeed for listening. A couple of quick notes. There's a film coming out about the journey of Shanzang, the Chinese pilgrim to India. It's a cooperation between a Chinese production company and an Indian one. I think it's distributed by Eros International. It's supposed to be out this year sometime. Looks quite good. Also, I've been having a think about some of the stuff I said in earlier episodes. And at one point, I rubbished the art of the cushions, particularly the art on their coins. I said, it all looks distorted and the, the emperor couldn't have been very pleased with it. I've had a rethink, I actually had a look at the coins, had a chance to see them, and I've decided that no, cushion artists and cushion coin designers were actually pretty darn good. It's just that they had a very stylistic idea of what a face should look like. And in fact, you find cushion faces elongated. Um, I think let's do a whole entire special episode on art during this time. So that's going to be coming soon. Thanks once again for listening. I really appreciate it. And if you've been enjoying the podcasts, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snail Situ Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. Have a great week and take care.